them, I think, at the Lord's Prayer. And uh, it's been an exciting journey for me. Uh, I don't know for how many others it has been, but for me it's been exciting because I've gone through the Lord's Prayer, I don't even know, thousands upon thousands of times. And I read the words in those verses, those sections of Scripture that we become so familiar with. We oftentimes read the words, but we, we're not even thinking about what we're saying. And so it's been exciting as we've had just slowed down a little bit and taken a look at, at the Lord's Prayer. This, this concept, the Lord's Prayer, understanding that truly it's our prayer. When the disciples in the Gospel of Luke come to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us how to pray, a prayer almost exactly word for word as this prayer is what the Lord gave. This is how you ought to pray. So let's take a look at it. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 9, he said, In this manner therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The first thing that that Jesus teaches us is that when we pray, our prayers are offered up to a God who is relational. It's not Almighty God, it's our Father. We've been adopted into the family of God, the scripture declares to us. And by that adoption, we can cry out to Almighty God, Father, our Father. And it's our Father because we're together in this. Nobody stands alone. Nobody's an island. We're together, unified, a body. So when we pray, we're, we're encouraged to remember that we're all part of one another. Paul describes us as a body saying that one is a finger, another a toe, this part, that part. Some parts you see, some parts you don't. But they're all part of your body and they're all important. And the same is true with us as we come before the Lord in an attitude of prayer. Next he goes on to hallowed be your name. That, that concept... That the purpose behind our prayer is to glorify God. To bring honor and glory to His name. Hallowed be your name. To bring honor. When we pray, it's not always... So often for me, it was, it was my list of this is what I want, and this is what I need, and this is what I'm hoping for. But that's not how Jesus taught us to start. He's taught us to start by glorifying the name of God. Hallowed be your name. And then, your kingdom come. To pray that He is our King. Is Jesus your King? Is He the one whom you serve? Is He the one that, from whom you receive your marching orders for the day? Because that's that reminder. Your kingdom come. This is about Him. It's all about the Lord. He went on to say, then your will be done. That thing that we're so afraid of. But we come to realize that the will of God is an outpouring of the love of God. The will of God for our life is an outpouring of the love of God. We don't have to be afraid of it. It's not always easy. But it's always good. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now we're offering ourselves as tools to the Lord. Your will to be done here requires me to do what you're asking me to do. For, your, for God's will to be done on earth, it, it remains to you and I. Until Jesus returns in Revelation chapter 19 to earth, it's us. It's up to us. 
So if God's will is going to be done on earth, it's going to be done by you and I saying, here I am, Lord. As, as Fritz prayed, what can be accomplished on earth by a man or woman who is totally devoted and utterly submitted to God? We've seen it because we saw it in the life of the Son, Jesus Christ. A life totally devoted and committed, submitted to the Lord, to God. We see what he was able to do. And you remember what Jesus said to his disciples? He said, these things you've seen me do and greater you shall do when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So it's not that God's calling us to something we can't attain or we can't reach, we can't touch. But we have this never-ending battle with ourselves, don't we? We have this never-ending battle with ourselves and our doubts and our fears that want to trip us up and rip us off from that life of power that God wants to give, that God wants to bestow upon us. Then it moves in, the prayer moves into our request. First he says, give us this day our daily bread. The idea that where does everything good come from? The Bible's clear. Everything good comes from our Father in heaven, the Father of lights, in whom is no darkness or shadow of turning. Almighty God gives us everything we need. And not just our daily sustenance, our food, but also our spiritual sustenance, that which we need to keep our spirit alive. I'm pretty good at feeding my flesh. You know how you can tell? Your flesh grows. I have an abundance. If anybody needs any extra, just let me know. I'll be happy to pass some on. Our flesh grows, but even as our flesh grows, our spirit needs to grow, doesn't it? So in that prayer, when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, don't just think of the possessions that we need or the things that we want, but realize God wants us to grow spiritually. And we're going to grow spiritually as we devour his word, as we spend time in his word, as we apply his word to our life, as we open it, dissect it, make it a part of who we are. So we devour the word. God called the prophets to eat the word. In the book of Revelation, we see John eating the word. We realize that Jesus said in John chapter 6, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part of me. And we know he wasn't calling us to cannibalism. He was calling us to the word of God. Why? Because he's God the word. Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus returns, you'll have his name written on his thigh. The word of God, king of kings and lord of lords. That we would make the word of God part of our life. That daily bread that we desire from the Lord. And then he says, he goes on from there to move to forgive us our debts. Now so often, so often in my prayer life, I always thought that before I could ask God for anything, I better get forgiven of all I need. But that's not the model prayer that Jesus laid out. Why? Because you and I are in a right standing before the Father by the blood of Jesus Christ. For the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. So why do we have to say forgive us our debts at all? Because we get dirty while we walk through the world, don't we? That's what 1 John 1, 9 was all about. So we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. As far as the east is from the west, Psalm tells us he has removed our transgressions from us he takes the sin away he purges the sin and then all he asks of us is when you're dirty come to me and let me wash your feet remember jesus washing the feet of the disciples peter saying no 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 you're not going to wash my feet jesus said if i don't wash your feet 
I don't have anything to do with you. Just like Peter, we get dirty. Jesus said, you're not all dirty. You've been washed. Only your feet are dirty. Just let me clean them. So the same way in our prayer life, we come before the Lord and we say, Lord, forgive us our debts. The Aramaic word for debt is the same as the word for sin. It's the same. We owe a debt that we can't pay. We owe a debt that we can't pay. So Jesus Christ came to pay that debt. And then even as we pray, Lord, forgive us our debts, he goes on to qualify that statement. How does he qualify? Even as we forgive our debtors, those who have wronged us. You don't ever get to hold on to a grudge. You don't ever get to remain bitter. You don't ever get to say it's okay because the Lord says, I'll forgive you just like you forgive your brother. Some of us don't forgive our brother for very long, do we? Uh, Okay, I'll forgive him now, but I'm never going to forget it. Is that how you want God to forgive you? Okay, Jackie, I'll forgive you now, but I'm never going to forget it. Oh, no, Lord, don't do it like that. So he says, forgive us our debts, even as we, the same way, in the same manner that we forgive others. That that would be our, our attitude, an attitude of forgiveness. That's what God wants us to have. And then we come into where we are today. Lead us. That's a good place to stop, isn't it? And lead us. One of the things that mark true discipleship is the desire to follow. Do you desire to follow the Lord? Do you desire to allow God to lead you? Well, yeah, it's easy for us to nod, right? We can say, yeah, 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 Lord, you can lead me. But, But sometimes when we see where he's taking us, we're not so excited about it, are we? Sometimes we're, we're following the Lord and, and we said, lead us. We sing songs all the time. You guys, I've watched you do it. We'll sing a song. Uh, the, the, the words are, lead me to the cross. And our arms are up and we're praising the Lord. Yes, Lord, lead me to the cross. Do you forget what the cross is? We picture that cross, this beautiful place where we find forgiveness and grace. It's true. It's also a, a place of torture and torment. Wasn't easy. Wasn't simple. We pray, Lord, lead me to the cross. But as we see that cross coming and we realize what it's about, all of a sudden, that whole lead us is, uh, lead us someplace else. <laughs> lead us somewhere easier. Lead us somewhere better. In fact, turn with me to the 23rd Psalm. Everybody remembers the 23rd Psalm, right? We've, we've read it before. Let's go take a look at the 23rd Psalm for a moment. One of the most beloved psalms in all the the book of Psalms. A psalm of David begins like this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What's the next verse? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Wait a minute, who was leading you? Yeah, the shepherd, right? He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for His name's sake. The next verse. 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. How'd you get there? You're following the Lord. Jesus said, if you would to come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily and do what? Follow me. Where's he going? In Jesus' ministry, where was he going? The whole three years, where was he headed? Man, he was headed to the cross. He was headed to a place where he would die. One of the greatest mysteries in the book of Hebrews says that Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered. So we come before the Lord and we're, we're making our requests known. we got to ask ourselves right out the gate. When we say, lead us, are we really willing to follow the Lord? Are we willing to get behind the shepherd as the 23rd Psalm lays out for us? Are we willing to climb in and say, lead us, Lord, lead us? Because when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's not the end, is it? Because the 23rd Psalm then turns personal. And begins to talk about how God's there with us. How his rod and his staff, they comfort us. We remember stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace of affliction. Where was God? Standing outside watching them torment? No, he's in the fire with them. Burning away the things that bound them together. Burning away the the things that were holding them back. So when we come to that place and we cry out to the Lord and we say, I'm submitting myself to you, Lord. I want to follow you. I want to do what you want me to do. Are we willing to follow him? Because it's not always to that little rosy path. Let me back that up. It's almost never to the little rosy path. It's not. and And the other thing we need to recognize, it's not because God seeks to destroy you. It's because God seeks to make you. And what we discover when we read the word of God is, man learns in the furnace of affliction. In the, in the place of prosperity, when that money's flowing and times are good and everything's happening, man tends to forget God. He did it for 400 years, the book of Judges. But in the furnace of affliction... Man remembers the Lord. He calls upon the Lord. He wants to to see the Lord. We want to allow God to lead us. And then, not only do we want to allow God to lead us, but remember, as he goes on in chapter 6 of Matthew, he lays out for us that we're to seek first what? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And what else? And His righteousness. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then all these other things will be added unto you. But we have to seek first his kingdom. Is our first desire our own safety? Is our first desire our own security? Is that our first thought? Because if it is, we're struggling in a place. We're we're in a place I would call no man's land. Where we're trying to live in both worlds. And we're trying to be the king of our life. And we're trying to submit our life to the Lord and we're struggling with the ability to do so because we're not willing to seek Him first. To seek His kingdom, the things of God first. We're not willing first to look for His righteousness. First, we're looking for something else. And then we'll add righteousness to it. That's not what the Lord says. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and then all these things will be added unto you. Lead us. 
Lead us, Lord. Are you willing to get behind him and go where he's going? Nowhere on the pages of scripture will you see Jesus say, come and follow me. Because everything will be easy once you do. But he does say, come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. For my burden is easy. He, lays us, he lets us know that that yoke with Jesus Christ fits well. It fits good. And it's much easier to pull a burden with the Lord pulling with you, isn't it? Much easier to find rest and peace when we say, whatever I'm going through, whatever's happening, it's me following the Lord first. And wherever he takes me, I'm willing to go. Lead us, Lord. P.T. Forsyth said this, The first duty of every soul is not to find its freedom, but its master. Who's your master? Jesus said, you'll love one and hate the other, but you can't serve them both. You can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve the Lord and the world. You can't live in two places at the same time. One or the other, which is it going to be? Who is your master? And then he goes on to tell us, lead us and lead us not into temptation. Now this is an interesting Interesting thing as we take a, a look and as we study. Temptation is a word that, that we can only define as we take a look at, at the structure of the sentence in the Greek around it. Why? Because the word for temptation, trial, and testing is the same exact word. And in order to understand what's the Lord talking about, is he talking about testing? Is he talking about temptation? Is he talking about trials? We've got to look at the, the way in which it's used and the way in which it's placed within the structure of the scripture. So he looks and he says, lead us not into temptation. But along with that, we want to realize that James chapter 1, guys, James chapter 1 verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted that he is tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So the idea of temptation is that picture of what occurs when a test is failed and we fall into sin. It has become temptation. It's about how we respond to what's happening in our life. How are we going to respond? Lead us not into temptation, a place where we stumble and fall in sin. So where, where do we want to be led? We want to be led to the triumph, not temptation. Well, how are we led to the triumph? Does it mean that we're going to avoid difficulty altogether? No, that's not what he's saying. Look, the scripture goes on to tell us in James chapter 1. You guys all know this. You'll recognize it as soon as I begin to read in verse 2. It says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various... Trials, same word. When you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, same word, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You hear what he said? Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Listen, important to understand. A faith 
that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. Every patriarch in the scriptures, when he followed the Lord, entered into times of testing, trials, things that they had to face, things that the Lord laid out for them to go through. And as they faced those, their response tells us whether they were led to temptation or whether they were led to triumph. Whether or not they allowed sin to lead them to a place where they stumbled and fell, or whether or not they let patience have its perfect work. You heard he, he said, let patience have its perfect work. How many have people here have said, whatever you do, don't pray for patience? Uh, nobody wants to confess in church? What's the deal? But James says, let patience have its perfect work. You need trials and testing so that you can learn patience. That's how patience comes. And you need to let patience have its perfect work because that's how you mature. That's how your faith grows. That's how you're established. So we want to let faith do its work. We want to let those things happen. We want to be a mature man and woman in Christ. Not children just drinking out of the bottle the whole life. We want to be able to eat meat. We want to be able to enjoy more. Listen, James 1.12 goes on to say, Blessed is a man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to all those who love him. Blessed is a man who endures. Blessed is a man. The Lord is going to bring times of testing. But we don't want to be led to temptation, the failure of the test. We want to be led to triumph, the success in the test. Well, Jesus told us like this, and in uh, around Matthew chapter 13, he talks about the, the parable of the sower, right? Everybody remember he, he, he cast out seed, it found four different types of soil, each one explaining the heart of man who receives the word of God. And as we take a look at it, in uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 5, it says, Some fell on stony places. Where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Sunshine is good for plant life when it has root base. But if the plant has no root base, no depth of root, it'll wither up and blow away. We watch it happen every year. We watch the grass come, the grass grow, the grass wither, the grass die, the grass blow away. Well, the same thing can be said of, of a person's faith. When our faith is tested by the sun, if we're true, if we're real, if we're grounded, if our roots are deep, then we won't wither away. But how are you going to know? By the test. You're going to know by the test. Well, that can't be good. Listen, that's a loving God who says, I don't want you to go through life thinking, what if I'm saved? Am I saved? Maybe I'm saved. I don't really know if I'm really saved. No. The Lord says, I'm going to bring a test so that you can know where you are. So that you can know if you're withered up and blown away. So that you can know if your faith is grounded and solid and withstands the storm. So the Lord brings the test. And how we respond to that test lets us know whether it's a triumph or a temptation. How we respond is everything. 
James 1.14, as long as you're in James, keep looking there. It says, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings death. James describes to us that downward slide. And he says that slide begins when we're drawn away by our own desires. And we begin to stumble. As soon as we're drawn away by our own desires, testing moves into a place of sin and defeat. We find ourselves tempted and falling. But if we rather press into the Lord, draw near into God, we find that time of testing not falling, not drifting into temptation, but leading us to triumph. Leading us to triumph in the Lord. We want that triumph. We want to experience all that he has for us. So let's take a look. You guys remember Abraham. Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. God comes to Abraham and he calls him out of Ur of the Chaldees. And Abraham sets down his idols and he follows the Lord. And the Lord says, just come with me, I'll show you where we're going. And when Abraham gets where they're going, there's a famine. What's that about? Surely, if God's calling you somewhere, it's all going to be good, right? It's all going to be no famine. It's going to be perfectly working together. But here Abraham finds him in the promised land. He's in the promised land. There's a famine. He doesn't know what to do. So he doesn't build an altar and seek the Lord. No, rather, he runs to Egypt. He runs to Egypt. And Egypt always becomes a picture of the world. Throughout Scripture, Egypt is a picture of the world. We'll see it more as we look at some other examples. So Abraham runs to the world for salvation. Doesn't seek the Lord, runs to the world. What happens in the world? Well, he says to his wife, Hey, honey, you're pretty hot. And when we get here, Pharaoh's going to want you. And in order to get you, he'll kill me. So let's lie and say you're my sister. So they get there. And, then, and sure enough, Pharaoh looks at Sarah and he's like, Man, she's pretty hot. She married? Abe says, No, that's my sister. Cool. So Pharaoh takes her, puts her in, her, in his harem. He's going to make her a part of, of his life. Sounds like a great plan so far, right? So God has to intervene. God has to intervene and set all those things right and get Pharaoh thinking the right way and tell Abe, what are you doing, brother? You're blowing your witness before the pagans. What's going on? What happened? There was a test. Rather than seek the Lord, he sought the world. Abe went to the world, and at the world he was led into temptation when his desires moved him into sin, and sin led him to death. And everything was falling apart, and God stopped it all and said, Abe, let me get you back on track. First test. Abe let that test move into failure. Now we fast forward in Abraham's life. And Abraham's sitting there enjoying life, thinking, man, what a great life. God fulfilled his promise to me. He gave me a son, and that son has grown up to be a, a lover of God, and he's a great young man, and I'm just, I'm so stoked to see what God's going to do in his life. And then God says, Abe, yes, Lord, take your son, the only son whom you love, and go to a mountain that I will show, show you, and there offer him as a burnt offering unto me. And Abraham got up and did it. What? 
A little famine, a lack of food, no rain led him to Egypt. But now when God calls him to sacrifice his son, he's up and walking. Why? Because he learned that if I follow the Lord, he won't lead me to temptation or failure. He'll lead me to triumph. And so Abraham followed him. And when he got to the top of the mountain, his son said, Dad, we got the wood, the fire. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said, Son, it's you. I, I need to sacrifice you to Almighty God. And what did his son do? Learn from his father's example. He laid down on the altar. Probably 30 years old. He didn't have to. He could have done whatever he wanted. So what's Abe do? Comes over his son and he lifts up the knife. And the angel of the Lord, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ appears to him. And says, now that I know you love me more than you love your son. There's a ram in the thicket. You don't sacrifice your son. What was, he was painting a picture though, wasn't he? He was painting a, a picture of what it is to love your son and what it is to love God and a picture of what God would do 2,000 years later as he offered his own son on a mountain for our sin. You see Abraham one point being led to temptation and another point as he followed the Lord instead of his own desires led to triumph. Look at the children of Israel. Children of Israel, all during, before, and after the Exodus, they're leaving Egypt, and where does the Lord take them? The Lord takes them between a rock and a, and a hard place. Migdol and Pihahiroth means a rock and a hard place, loosely. And they're between a rock and a hard place, and the Red Sea in front of them, and here coming, bearing down on them is the armies of Pharaoh. And the people, what do they do? Oh, Lord, why did you bring us here to kill us? You ever felt that way? You ever felt like, Lord, why did you bring me here to kill me? Why, did, why, why do I have to go through this? Why do I have to experience this thing in my life? How can this possibly be the road that you have for me? But God was testing them. And they complained. But God delivered anyway. Moses held out his staff, the Red Sea parted, they walked across on dry land. They got into the desert, and when they were in the desert, oh, I wish I'd have died in Egypt. There's no food here. I have felt that way. Once in my life, I went a whole week without bacon. <laughs> Wasn't easy. <laughs> so for all of you who keep giving me diet ideas, unless you got one that says bacon in it somewhere, just keep it. They start crying for food. Oh, we should have died in Egypt. What did the Lord give them? Manna. Manna, bread from heaven. Picturing the true bread from heaven, Jesus Christ, who would come. They went in the desert a little further. Oh, I'm so thirsty. God, why didn't you let us die in Egypt? So the Lord had Moses strike the rock, and the rock opened up and watered all the people. But they always resisted what God was doing in their life. And so they didn't enter into the promised land. That whole generation had to die. Because they always resisted what God was doing. Instead of having an attitude when they faced their trial. Instead of looking at that trial and saying, What can I get out of this? They would pray, How can I get out of this? But we want to have an attitude that says, Lord, I'm following you, right? 
And you led me to this place. And you don't want to lead me to failure. You want to lead me to triumph. So I need to recognize this is my head. I got to get my head wrapped around this and follow you. What can I get out of this, Lord? What do, you, what do you have to show me? What are you teaching me? How can I be a good witness for you? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we'll just take a look as we consider all that stuff that happened to the children of Israel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things have become our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. What led them to temptation? They followed their desire. They followed those evil desires, the flesh nagging at them, that God's not, God doesn't love them, that God doesn't have their best in mind, that God's not going to deliver them, that God's hand isn't on them. And so they would impute to God ill will every single time something bad happened. I don't know about you, but I've been there. You ever look at something and say, this can't be from a hand of a God who loves me. How can this be? How can this be your will, God? How can this be right? Never impute ill will to God. He loves you more than you can even begin to imagine. And if he has brought you into the valley of the shadow of death, He's brought you there for a reason. So we need to pray instead of how can I get out of this? What can I get from this? How can I grow? How can I know you more? How can I glorify God in the midst of this, of this thing, of this struggle, of this event that's going on in my life? Scripture goes on to tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10... And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition, for our learning. Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. For no temptation has overtaken you except as such as is common to man. But God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will always make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Learn from history. You remember the fellow Peter? He's a big fisherman and followed Jesus around. One day, 
They're out in this storm. And Jesus had just fed the 5,000. Now that was kind of cool. And, and the first time they were out in the storm, they freaked out. You know, Lord, don't you care about us? And, and Jesus said, peace be still, and the storm stopped. So, so Peter was beginning to have a little bit of faith. His faith was growing a little bit. But now they're in another storm. And they're rowing and they're doing their thing. But then somebody looks off the edge of the boat and they go, man, there's a ghost coming. And Peter looks around and he says, he says, Lord, is that you? If that's you, Jesus, bid me come. So Jesus said to Peter, come. Peter had enough faith to get out the boat, right? So he comes to the edge of the boat and he leaps into the water and, and, and miracle of miracles. He's walking on the water and he's looking at Jesus and he's stoked, man. It's like, man, this is awesome. But as he's walking, he begins to look at the wind and, he, and he, he, his view gets distracted of the Lord and he sees the waves and he sees how dangerous the water is out there. And the next thing you know, bloop, he's, in, he's under the water. Just like that. Bloop. It's not a slow, quick, sandy thing like, ooh, bloop. <laughs> Last time I was walking on water and I fell, went straight in. So Peter, he goes straight down in the water and cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus picks him up and holds him close to himself and says, Ah, Peter, why'd you doubt, brother? You're there. You're right there. He gets back in the boat. Fast forward. In the book of Acts, we find Peter been arrested. And the king has decided, Peter, tomorrow morning, off with your head, brother. Tomorrow morning, you're done. Where do we find Peter that day? Sleeping. Sleeping like a baby. No, sleeping like a rock. How do we know he's sleeping like a rock? Because an angel appears in his cell and has to kick him to wake him up. Pete. Pete. Peter, get up. Oh, it's an angel. Wow. Thought I was dreaming there for a minute. Well, how was it that he was able to sleep so soundly then? Why wasn't he freaking out? Tomorrow he's going to lose his head. Because in John chapter 21, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, when you're old, men are going to take you where you don't want to go. And you'll be crucified. And so Peter's sitting in that jail cell, looking around, thinking... He said, I'm being beheaded tomorrow. And Jesus said, I'm going to be crucified. So I don't have to worry about it. This isn't the time. And he crashed. And the angel woke him up and walked him out. The first test led Peter to a, a, a struggle, a failure. His own desires. He saw the wind and the waves and all the craziness. And he, and he just bailed and sunk and the Lord picked him up. But the second time. He was led to triumph because he stayed right on the right in the steps of Jesus. Lead us not to temptation. Lead us to triumph. I'm not going to fail. I'm going to follow you. Even though you're leading me through the valley of the shadow of death. I don't have to fear any evil for you're with me. Peter overcame. Peter overcame. We go through scripture. We can see this over and over and over again. What does God call us to do? He says to walk by what? Walk by faith, not by... We're supposed to walk by... Not by... This is fun. Walk by... Not by... So he wants us to have faith in what God has said to us. Now, have you ever faced something where that was hard to do? Because everything you look at says, 
It's all circling the drain and it's not going to work out and everything's bad. But God says, everything's good. For I do not consider it worthy to be compared, this present suffering, to the glory which shall be revealed in us. Not even worthy to be compared. We've got to walk by faith. Lead us, follow Jesus, not to temptation and failure, to triumph. To overcoming these things that we see before us. Every single believer that we know faced testing and did the impossible. Everyone we read of in the, in the scriptures faced, te- faced testing and triumphed because they followed the Lord. They were led and God brought them to the triumph. Well, listen, as we think about this, so Lord... Lead us not into temptation. What's he saying? Give me the faith, God. Give me the faith that I need to overcome, to see the things that are going on, but trust God within every part of me to accept this trial, this testing, and use it for your glory. That's what it means to say, lead us not into temptation. I trust you. And I'm not going to fail because I'm going to follow you. You're going to lead me through The valley of the shadow of death. So when we think about it, when we think about triumph and temptation, there's three things we want to hold on to and understand that. And then we're going to move on. Three things real quick. I want you to remember. One, the Lord never permits a trial that is unnecessary. The Lord never permits a trial that is unnecessary. Proverbs 20, 24. Man's steps are of the Lord. So how can a man understand his own way? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. He'll direct your step. No trial is unnecessary. It fulfills a purpose. And God knows, the second thing, God knows what you are capable of. In the test. God doesn't bring a test to show you you failed. He brings a test to show you what you can do. What you can accomplish. What you can overcome. We just read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13. For no temptation is overtaking you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will all also make a way of escape. That you may be able to bear it. God knows what you can take. He knows what you need. He loves you more than anybody else. And the hands of our Father is a perfect place to be. But I don't like where you're leading me. Just follow close. Well, if I follow close, is it all going to be okay? One way or the other. He may lead you through the valley of the shadow of death to bring you home, to bring you to Him. What a glorious thing to come before Almighty God and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You passed that last test. You were finished your life in triumph. It's a lot better than saying, "Ah, why did you doubt? So close. So close. Finish your race with joy. The third thing 
Our trials may always distress us, but there is always a reason to rejoice. Trials wear us out, but we don't have to be freaked out. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Listen to what Paul said. And lest I should be exalted above measure by abundance of the uh, revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. So concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproach, in needs, in persecution, in distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. P.T. Forsyth said it like this. The greatest prayer that we can pray is, is for the conversion of pain, not for its removal. That God would turn that pain into victory, into triumph. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. John 17, 15, the Lord said, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. In Colossians 1, 13, the scripture lays out for us. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. In whom we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sin. Translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Moved away from the evil one. Colossians 2, 15. He has disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Hebrews 2.14 Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Deliver us from the evil one. It is done. You are delivered. Victory is won. It is assured you do not fight for victory. You fight from victory. He has disarmed the principalities and powers. He has delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He has set us free. But Satan still tells those lies, doesn't he? God doesn't really love you. If he loved you, you wouldn't be going through this. Has God really said that? Oh, God's holding out on you. He's not telling you the whole truth. That's the lies of the devil. But in Revelation chapter 12, we're given a little tidbit of information. It's important for us to grasp That they overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life to the death. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb. What's the blood of the Lamb? Let's take a look. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. This is a concept. The blood of the Lamb. It's finished. It's done. The blood was shed. The victory is won. Satan is put down. 
There's nothing he can do to any of us. He has no power. All he can do is run his yap. He's a yip dog. Biting at your heels. He has no power. The blood of Jesus Christ set us free. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 23. Therefore it was necessary that the copy of the things in heaven should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. What's he talking about? When Moses brought the law and they were building the tabernacle, they had all the stuff ready for the tabernacle. They purified it all by the sprinkling of blood. They sprinkled the blood of the lamb on all that stuff. All the copies of the heavenly things is the tabernacle, the things of the temple, the people and the law. But the things in heaven, the true part that that is a copy of, they needed to be, they needed to be purged with something greater. Verse 24, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, and now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as a high priest in the, in the most holy place did every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And it is appointed for man to die once, but after this judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin to salvation. So when Christ died, he took that blood in heaven and sprinkled the heavenly things, the mercy seat, which is a picture of the throne of God. The last thing he broke was the power of death. It's done. It's finished. You are delivered from the evil one. But you can give him power by listening to his lies. You can give him power by giving him the opportunity to convince you to follow your own desires, which leads to sin and ultimately to death. But you overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. Shed once for all. Finished. The second thing. They overcame him by the word of their testimony. Romans 8. Flip over to Romans 8, verse 33. So who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Well, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So who is it that will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword? What about your testing, your trial right now? Does it separate you from the love of Christ? Does that mean God doesn't love you? According to Paul, he says, as it is written, For your sake, God, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted like sheep for the slaughter. Yet... In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. No matter what we face, we can overcome by the power of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit working in our life. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, or powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the word of your testimony. Nothing separates me from the love of God. 
They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb shed once for all, by the word of their testimony, that nothing can separate me from the love of God. Nothing. And finally, that they did not love their life to the death. That means that they did not put their security or their possessions before the Lord. Well, I got to do it this way. I got to do it that way because then we'll be financially secure. If that comes before your love of God, you're out of order. They did not love their lives. They did not say, I got to do this so that I can have that. I got to do this so I can have this. Listen, the scripture tells us in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess for my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will deny before my Father in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set man against father, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Man's enemies will be those of his own household. Why? He tells us in verse 37. For he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. They overcame, delivered from the power of the evil one by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and they didn't love their lives more than they loved God. They loved the Lord more. As we look at this prayer and as we allow these things to minister to us, don't forget what God is is laying out for us. The model to prayer, the power to find real power in prayer, a real prayer life. And he lays out all these important truths, but how many times have we read it? And never even thought about what he was saying. And this is how he closes. For yours, God, is the kingdom. It's not my kingdom, it's yours. For yours is the power, not my power. It's yours. For yours is the glory, not my glory. It's yours forever. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time that we can seek your face, Lord. I pray, God, as we've gone through these last four weeks and just looked at the the Lord's Prayer, Lord, that it would just encourage us. It would encourage us to take every piece, every section, to meditate on it, to chew on it, to recognize and realize what it is, who it is we're praying to, what it is that we're asking for. And how we find the victory, Lord, how we're not 
going to be walking our own way, led into temptation, but rather that we follow you through the test, through the trial, through the, 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 the land of the shadow of death. But you lead us to the triumph. And you deliver us from the enemy because you already beat him. The victory is assured. I need to stand in that blood that forgives me of all sin, no matter what the devil says. I need to cling to the word of God, which says nothing can separate me from the love of God, no matter what the devil says. God doesn't really love you. And I need to realize, God, that you're calling me to love you more than I love everything else in my life. You first. You first. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us, not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We're going to close.